Hello and welcome to Rap Party with Prime Video. I'm Rihanna Dillon, I'm a film critic, and with me is my nerd in residence and great pal, Michael Leader. Oh Rihanna, it's such a pleasure to be here with you as always, talking as we do with the people behind the scenes of the movies and TV series we love. It is a really, really fun week this week as well, because we are delving into an art that, as so often, never quite gets the recognition it deserves, but you will have seen so many of these things and been in awe of them because this week we are talking about stunts. Rihanna, Mm -hmm. every episode I like asking you this question up top. What do you think when you hear the word stunts? I think about all those old westerns Mm -hmm. where there were like horse chases and people falling off and jumping back on again and riding backwards and all that kind of stuff. And I suppose most recently, I think about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where we actually focus on the life of a stunt double or a stunt coordinator, stunt performer in the form of Brad Pitt, in the very lovely form of Brad Pitt. (laughs) No wonder that came up. Uh, And so I think that was really nice because it did shine a bit of a light on the behind the scenes. I mean, I love films about films anyway, Mm -hmm. like Singing Mm -hmm. in the Rain. I know we mentioned this last week, but it is a brilliant catch-all when you're talking about the beginning of film traditions and seeing Don Lockwood Mm. in a bar punch-up, I think, again, in a Western, was, I think, the first time that I was really aware that stunts weren't real. (laughs) So Singing in the Rain is another one, a great one to go back to as well. Yeah, it's true. It's something that... Maybe one of the few crafts we've talked about where something from 100 years ago is just as spectacular on screen Mm. now. Mm -hmm. I think about Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd and the silent comedy legends. Buster Keaton, who would, you know, there's a scene in The General on the train. There's that amazing sequence where the front of a house house. falls onto him and he's just perfectly placed so that he doesn't get completely splattered. (laughs) He nailed his shoes to the floor so he wouldn't be able to move and run away or flinch, Mm -hmm. which I love the dedication to that bit. (laughs) And... Harold Lloyd in Safety Last, hanging off the clock tower, uh-huh. which still looks as thrilling and perilous and spectacular now as it did back then. But Safety Last actually is a good title, maybe, <laughs> yes. for, for this episode. Although I'm sure we'll find out in the interview that it's more about safety first. In the last few decades, it's more about health and safety regulations, I'm making sure, sure that these stunts are done appropriately rather than just people being thrown <laughs> off horses, thrown <laughs> under cars and so on. But it's true, as a craft, maybe we don't know much about it. And stunt people rarely get recognition do they there are a couple of stunt people who have graduated into being stars in their own right the first one that comes to mind for me is zoe bell who was uma thurman's Mm -hmm. stunt woman on the kill bill films in the tarantino movies and then tarantino took it upon himself to make zoe bell into an actress in her own right she has an incredible performance in death proof where she then does stunts of her own where she's on the front of a speeding car But then also we do have actors who were maybe their background was in martial arts or stunts Mm -hmm. that graduate onto the big screen like your Jackie Chan's or Chuck Norris's. We do have filmmakers as well who were stunt coordinators who graduate into the director's chair. The John Wick franchise being a perfect example of that. And John Wick franchise is, I think, trying to make a change in the industry as well by making sure that stunt coordinators and performers get the recognition that they deserve, Mm -hmm. which is a really great thing. Because actually the only time that I ever see 
stunt doubles being lauded is maybe on a celebrity's Instagram. You know, <laughs> look at me and my stunt double kind mm-hmm. of thing. And you never quite get the sense of how much danger or peril actually goes hand in hand with their job. Every day they have to go to work and do something terrifying. Or in fact, the only other time that we notice a stunt double is when it's a terrible one. When it's clearly somebody <laughs> so many of bad a different wigs. body shape in a wig. <laughs> but really, when it comes to spectacular stunts on the big screen, there really is only one name who's keeping that tradition alive. And that is Tom Cruise, right? In the Mission Impossible franchise. Yeah. And he is the actor who does all his own stunts, whether it's hanging off the side of a plane, whether it's free-falling from God knows how high, whether it's going to space or whatever he's going to do next. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because people always think about Tom Cruise as being one of the last true movie stars because of that sort of dedication that he has to his role. But actually, you can sort of imagine... Not everyone around him must be thrilled that he does his own stunts. <laughs> there must just be always that collective intake of breath whenever he falls from space, as you were saying, <laughs> just because what happens if he gets injured? Another franchise that always springs to mind when I think about stunts is the Fast and Furious franchise because of all the amount of cars that get mashed up in those films. And another really brilliant car-based stunt scene is in Mad Max Fury Road. Mm-hmm. That I think they do incredible things in that film and that feels incredibly pioneering as well just for the amount of just buggies and lorries and cars that are involved in this incredible high-speed chase and all the explosions and everything that comes with it. In fact, the entire film is the high-speed chase, really. The entire film is a stunt sequence with how many drivers, how many stunt performers. (laughs) I think that's something that's really fascinating, isn't it? So you look back to the Western era of cinema, the 50s, and then into the 60s, 70s, you have the James Bond franchise, all these big stunt-based properties. And then CGI comes in and maybe we go into the superhero territory. Mm -hmm. Or I still think about Harry Potter CGI, where it's clearly a CGI little Daniel Radcliffe (laughs) on Nimbus. But now maybe it's swinging back in the other direction and people want to see this live. They want to see Tom Cruise breaking his ankle in a shot (laughs) when (laughs) he doesn't quite make that jump. So we managed to speak to the one guy who basically straddles all of these things. He's had an incredible career. He worked on Indiana Jones, The Lost Crusade. And he's also worked on sitcoms, which I wouldn't necessarily think of as having to have a stunt coordinator or performer. And then something that really would need somebody to coordinate a hell of a lot like the Grand Tour for example and this is Jim Dowdle he's had a fascinating career yeah can I geek out for a minute go on we wouldn't expect anything less from you I mean credits including the Bourne Supremacy Indiana Jones as you mentioned he's in Superman 2 as (laughs) the poor cosmonaut Boris who has a meeting with Zod on the moon Uh uh-huh Brazil, the Terry Gilliam movie. Again, something you wouldn't necessarily think that has stunts in, but he worked on that. He has mm-hmm. this amazing, extensive list of credits. Um, and and has, also, has he worked on your favourite film of all time, Michael? Batman? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Is this the only reason we're talking to him today? Well, also, he's worked on, I think, depending on whether you count, Casino Royale, the 1960s film, and Never Say Never Again, the sort of unofficial Bond movie from the 80s. He's worked on 10 Bond movies. And that cuts across Roger Moore, Pierce Brosnan, and Timothy Dalton, with, of course, returning Sean Connery in and Never Say Never Again. <laughs> I can't wait to hear about all of his experiences working with those actors as well, mm-hmm. because... Again, being Harrison Ford's double, I mean, how do you even go about doing something like that? Why don't we ask him? Okay, great. Here is Jim Dowdle. (laughs) 
Jim Dowdle, welcome to The Rap Party. Thank you very much. It's such a pleasure to talk to you, Jim. I suppose let's start with a big general question. How does one become a stuntman? Well, that's slightly, you know, um, how long is a piece of string in some (laughs) ways. But essentially, in this country, the largest conglomerate of stunt performers, if you like, is the British Stunt Register, which used to be run by Equity and is now an independent association with offices of Pinewood Studios and so on and so forth. And you need a minimum of six sporting subjects out of a list that we give you. You need a set number of days, I think it's 64 days in front of camera doing extra work so that you know which end is which and you know how to take a cue and everything else. And once you've got those six qualifications, then you'd come up to the stunt register offices and we'd meet you there. And if everything was in place, then we'd welcome you on as a probationary member. And there are then five levels going up, each of which you progress. And you have a logbook, which you have to sign after every job. When you start, you can only work with a coordinator. You can't work on your own as a performer. So it's a very regulated system. Now, there are other people, a few people out there who don't go through that system, but they're not as well recognized by the producers associations and the insurers and everything else. So I would point people to the British Stunt Register as being definitely the first port of call. As the chairman, I have to kind of do that. (laughs) Could see that coming. (laughs) Yeah. Can you unpick all of the different credits that you have? You mentioned a couple stunt coordinator, stunt performer, but also there are stunt drivers and just stunts. So tell us about all those different little bits. For argument's sake, let's say you're a member of the British Stunt Register and you are a qualified stunt performer. You are a stunt performer and the expectation is that one day you might be asked to ride a bicycle off the first floor of a block of flats or fall out of a window on fire or the next day you might be asked to get knocked over by a car. We don't have people who just come on as drivers or as horsemen or as swordsmen. The whole essence of being a stunt performer is varied skills and there are obviously people who have specialist skills but it's no good just saying I just drive cars because we don't accept that. (laughs) And looking at your career, Jim, you have driven cars, you have hung off the sides of trains, you've done all sorts. So could you say what your route into being a stuntman was, a stunt performer? (laughs) I was never going to be a good student academically (laughs) as as long as there was breath in my body. So I left school at 16 with one O-level and I joined Bertram Mill Circus. But I worked for a guy called Gerd Simeone, a globally known lion tamer at the time, and had one of the best acts in the world. So I worked for Simeone and it was an extraordinary experience just working in circus and having performers around. And occasionally I would go in and help the clowns out in the arena and all about do a bit of tumbling because I was Sussex Schoolboys gymnastics champion before I left school. And so I was into all that sort of gymnastic stuff when the season finished and had a variety of experiences before I then got a job as a film armourer doing guns on movies. And my first film as an armourer, assistant armourer, was on a film called The Dirty Dozen with people like Lee Marvin and Donald Sutherland. I had some extraordinary times for a young lad who was um, you know, not yet 21. And then I left there because I thought I could be a film armourer all my life and I wanted to move on. I'd met Stuntman and I thought... That's interesting, but I started doing extra work and got my equity card, which was quite difficult in those days. And then the stunt register was formed in 1973. In the old days, the stuntmen used to be part of what we call the crowd or the extras. And then they'd come around in the morning and say, does anybody fancy crashing the car or thing? And it's, a, it's an extra 10 or 15 or 20 quid or whatever it was. And there were those people that kind of specialised and put their hand up. 
then we all got together. I was very young fledgling and said, we need to become specialist people and we will not do extra work and the extras will not do stunt work. And so we delineated in 1973. And here we are X numbers of years later with a very different system, but still specialising and we don't do extra work and they didn't do stunt work. There is so much to unpick there. I don't even know where to begin. What an incredible launch to your career. Well, it's all down to the fact that my mother wanted, she was always going, oh, when are you going to get a real job, a proper job and blah, 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 blah. And the fact that, you know, with one O-level, I'd got more chance of getting a normal job than being handcuffed to a ghost. So life was dictated to me by an opportunity. I went out to Ascot to where Bertram Mills was and I just said, I'm looking for a job. But in those days, it was very different. People weren't desperate from hunting for jobs. Wherever you went, you could get a job, providing you were prepared to knuckle down and do something which wasn't possibly within your academic remit. And I, as I had no academic remit, I didn't have much of a choice. It fascinates me that it's only in the early mid-70s that stunt performing became this formalised, regulated thing. And part of this is, of course, we love the spectacle, we love the stories, we love you know, hearing about people being set on fire and jumping out of windows and so on. But it is also a very regulated, very safe profession. So could, could you tell us a little bit about the history there? So before then, was it all just the Wild West and completely unregulated and now there's all sorts of safety checks put in place? Well, I mean, now it's a very different, you know, we have health and safety. We had the elf on the set now which we never had in those days and just because it became regulated that didn't necessarily make things safer it meant that we became more specialized and we started to accrue more knowledge which was specific to stunt work but by definition a stunt cannot be safe it is not safe to fall down a flight of stairs you can get better and better pads but the net net is that you're still going to get hit you're still running a risk of doing damage to yourself so the safety side of it is increased the probability of injury is reduced, but it's never dismissed or taken away. So that side of things meant that we had access, if you like. We would say to the productions then, look, we need this and that to make this safer. And they would go, all right. But in those days, they also used to get you to sign a thing called a blood chit. And you signed that, and that was a waiver for them to have any responsibility if anything happened to you. Yeah. So it was a, that was a very different, we got rid of blood shits probably by the late seventies. And we said to him, no, you know, we're not signing that. And we took out our own personal indemnity insurance for injury for us, which if I got injured, I could actually go to them and they would pay X amount a week, depending on the premium that I'd paid for a year or two years, depending on the degree of the injury, which meant at least my wages or the performer's wages were covered for a little while. So how does that affect you mentally if you're then going back into a field where you may well injure yourself again? You know, when you're that age and you're 22 and you've, you know, been a para and you think you're 10 feet tall, bulletproof and invisible. (laughs) I mean, I've always had problems with my back because Mm. I impacted three vertebrae and you just have to be very aware of that. Just as the stunt registers, I went off to America and jousted and I was falling off a horse at least twice a night because they used to pay an extra £10 if you fell off. So I thought, okay, you know, that's fine. But we were doing at least one show a night, and then a matinee on Saturdays as well. So, And that was in a place called the Cow Palace in San Francisco, which is where they do indoor rodeos. So they had massive amounts of dirt, which they would bring in for you to fall on. And then we used to put peat alongside the actual tilt. 
But still, there were sort of stones and rocks occasionally, which always seemed to manage to find you on your left buttock or your right buttock or your elbow. I could still perform. I just had to be a little bit careful. And occasionally my back would just click out and I'd have to take a week off and a few painkillers. That speaks to a question I had, which is, like, what are the special attributes that go into the stunt profession? Of course, there are, as you say, there's training and apprenticeship and all, all this, but is there a mental attitude behind it as well that's important? I don't think you can quantify a mental attitude. You meet the people and you know the people that you think, mm, this guy knows what he's doing or this guy or girl is not quite there in terms of what you're looking for. And you can tell sometimes that they're leery about something and that therefore that their confidence is not at the level that possibly you need to be able to perform that stunt safely and that's the most important thing is that confidence is something which then brings safety to the thing because the person is actually going to go for what it is that they're going to go for and they feel that they've got the skills if they haven't in my experience now as a coordinator i would withdraw that person the moment i got a flicker of something which i felt that their can i put it crudely and say their sphincter was twitching a little bit That's, That's per- perfectly put. <laughs> <laughs> confidence, of course it is. Like any job which is physical, you've got to have physical confidence. I mean, you're pushing Sanao uphill with a hot spoon if you haven't got that confidence that says, I can do what I'm going to do. But occasionally people think that because they come on the stunt register, they are now a stunt performer. And they're not. They go out and they buy the belt buckle and the T-shirt and the hat and they think that they're magnificent. And it doesn't mean that at all. When they come on that stunt register, they're now in the first stages of learning to become a stunt performer. And that's not going to come until you've done your 10,000 hours. That's that old cliche about you don't know you've trained until you've done 10,000 hours. And I believe very strongly in that. Could you demystify the process behind stunt coordination then for us? I'm sure it's different for every project, but what point do you come on to a film? What are you given? What do you bring? And then what do you do on set? The process runs is that you get a phone call and somebody says, your name's in a hat for this job. And so they send you a script. You go through and you think, right, okay, you underline all the bits and pieces which you think are stunt applicable. You then send them a list of what you consider to be the stunt applicable scenes. And then if they're interested, you go up and you have a meeting with the director and you discuss what his vision is for how he wants to play it. And it's the stunt coordinator's job to interpret that as spectacularly and safely within the confines of the budget. And when you're working on these films that you just talked about with these incredible names, and understandably they weren't necessarily household as much as they are now, but someone like Harrison Ford, who you were his stunt double several times, I think, in the 70s, do you have to immerse yourself in how he acts and how he moves as well as having to coordinate? So tell me all about that process. Absolutely, yeah. I used to watch Harrison walk and then I'd go around the back and I'd ask one of the other guys, I'd go, from the back, am I looking like it? <laughs> Literally. And Harrison had a very particular walk. And the mimicking of that is what keeps you then moving on to possibly the next film, Doubling Through, because people know that what you're trying to do is to emulate him without trying to steal his shadow, if you like. So, yes, and you had your hair cut the same way and... From the production's point of view, much better if you can get your hair cut the same way rather than them having to put a wig on you, for instance. Mm. A lot of the guys and girls have got their particular artists and they go around the world with them because they've established a relationship and they look enough like them. The actors say, I've got to have that. It's in my contract with some people that they have 
those particular performers doubling for them. Is it really like a stuntman's dream to work on all of those incredible films like the Bond films? I mean, you worked on more Bond movies than Roger Moore. <laughs> what an <laughs> well, incredible record. Yeah, it was, it was great fun. And I have to say that in those days, prior to CGI and all the electronics and everything else that the film industry enjoys now, we did everything for real. We would rehearse for weeks to do those big sequences on Bond. In those days, we did everything for real. And it was exciting. It was great fun, but it was kind of a family because each 18 months, you'd come back again and it would be, tend to be the same people. Bond was, were very loyal in many respects to their crew because they said, we've got a winning formula. We want to retain that formula. And everybody knew each other. And it was a cyclical process which maintained that level of really good filmmaking for so many years and which has kept the bond alive uh, as long as it has done because they have got a little touch of magic there and, and pierce was an old mate i knew him from his days at drama center in london i used to go and you know help him with various bits and pieces then in the early 70s and i used to take him out for beans on toast because he didn't have any money at all and then the next thing is i'm off in america and he's doing remington steel and he's got this trailer that as long as a bowling alley and he comes out of it you know and he grins and he goes it's a long way from beans on toast isn't it (laughs) there are like we've talked about the films that are very very action heavy and therefore stunt heavy but i'm always amazed like when you are watching something like the Vicar of Dibley, and then you see a stunt coordinator come up or in Green Ring, for example. So tell me about those sorts of surprising TV or films that have stunts in. Well, you know, those things that we did. I mean, I, you know, I used to double for Ian Lavender on, on Dad's Army. And you think <laughs> Dad's Army didn't really have stuff, but they did have little stunts here and there. And Vicar of Dibley, I had to go and organise for her to fall into a grave. Oh. <laughs> no, it was a comedy sketch, yes. but I had to get this grave sorted out and I had to put a box rig in there that she was comfortable to fall into. Mm-hmm. But goodness me, I wish I'd done a few more of those. The repeats from Vicar of Dibley have been absolutely spectacular, <laughs> as they have from Dad's Army. Every Christmas they do a box set of Dad's Army and I get another sort of 500 quid. Very nice, thank you. <laughs> if it is like a comedy skit that is supposed to look painful or bad, Green Wing, for example, there are so many little accidents and you know yes. weird things. Yes. then does that change the way that you not necessarily approach a stunt but how you might execute it yes because comedically it works much better if you can do it with the actor mm. or you can get the actor involved and therefore there's an assessment of an actor some actors the idea that you might be walking past them with your arm on fire and they completely <laughs> freak out and other ones they go okay yeah i don't find that and you show them and you set your arm on fire and you walk past them and they go fine so i'm constantly assessing whether we're going to get a situation where the actor might panic or whether they're cool about it, in which case they can think more about the performance that they're doing to camera. So Mark Heap was cool about you setting his arm on fire in Green Wing? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love but it that. was very, very much about trying it bit by bit. Here's a little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit more. Are you happy with that? A little bit more, happy with that, a little bit more, happy with that. There's no point in going in there and saying, look, mate, it'll be fine. I'll just set your arm and I'll be standing here with a fire extinguisher. (laughs) It's incremental in terms of the amount of trickiness. Let's say danger, but it's not danger. There is just an element there. But there are all sorts of things about fire which you have to be very careful about. And you have to be careful. If you're outside, you've got to be very careful that you're not in an area where the wind direction can change because of a building. And you Mm. thought you're fine here. And then suddenly the wind comes around. And all of a sudden, it's changed the whole situation. So many things 
that you have to consider. And those things are what comes in after you've done your 10,000 hours. <laughs> Speaking of people who maybe haven't done their 10,000 hours, there's so much value, maybe it's all hype, placed on the actor who does all their own stunts. Mm. And I wonder, how do you view that sort of actor? Is that a problem or is that just another problem to solve? Yeah, of course it's a problem because if he injures himself, everybody's sitting on their hands and they call a force majeure and everybody's laid off. Tom Cruise is the classic example. I was told that when he broke his ankle on the previous Mission Impossible, there was mention of something like nine and a half to ten million dollars worth of that's what it cost when that happened because they had to lay the crew off. That may be hearsay, but it would make sense when you think that he's the central character. But because he's the producer, he has the say on that. And if he wants to do those things, he wants to do those things. And that's why Mission Impossible has gone to be such a successful franchise, because they push the element that Tom does all his own gags as far as possible. But when he is throwing himself against a car, crash, well, you know, somebody bashes him against a car. That car is made of rubber. It's cost tens of thousands of pounds to produce that just for that gag. But of course, their budgets are massive, massive on that. So that isn't a realistic example because everybody goes, oh, Tom Cruise does his own stunts. But it's not like that across the board at all. An actor is a very valuable asset. Richard Burton wouldn't climb on a chair once. He had a stunt double to climb on a chair. I remember that very clearly, you know, thinking, okay, fine, but he's one of the most expensive actors in the world. He doesn't want to do that. And does it change when you're doing like real life stunts in, you know, inverted commas for things like the Grand Tour? Like, do the guys really throw themselves into doing stunts? You know, I have to kind of restrain people occasionally on those shows. I'm not trying to lord it up here, but they do get some very silly ideas. And on two or three occasions, I've had to say, look, guys, this is just really We need to kind of take a deep breath here and look at what you're proposing. And you either get a stunt double and they go, oh, we're not going to stop it. The whole point is the fact that we do the gags and all that kind of stuff. We did one where each of the boys was driving a lorry. Richard was going to drive one through a big shed thing. Jeremy was going to drive a truck through a brick wall. (laughs) And May was going to drive through one of those stand-up swimming pools. And I said, guys... You can't do that. If he hits that with a flat-fronted lorry, he'll stop stone dead and his eyeballs will come out of his head. I said, you have to think of it like this. If you get a plank, okay, and you get a wide plank and you hit it on the water, you'll never get it to go below the water all day long. But if you put it on its side, Mm. it'll go through Mm -hmm. the water. Mm -hmm. And it's the same principle. And it took me a day of actually really saying, I'm not prepared to do this unless you build something in the front of that thing, which is like a point, a cow catcher or something, which is going to dissipate the water. We went to Sweden once when they were doing the one with the combine harvester with a flamethrower on it. Right. And (laughs) and at one point, you know, there's this poor guy walking across the car park with his skis, and the next minute you see him walking across the car park, and he's on fire. And I said, look, that'll be me. There won't be anybody else that's going to be walking across the car park on fire. And they were fine about that. But I did have to, Jesus, I had some times on those shows. And Jeremy writes a lot of the gags on that. And we get there and we've done all this prep work. And he suddenly goes, actually, we're going to do this, that and the other, which changes the whole thing, which actually is funnier and actually is. I mean, he's very clever like that. He does it in in such a way you think, oh, okay, that's completely screwed up my rehearsals or everything that I'm doing. So now I've got to think on my feet. And that capacity, that realization about how things can change came 
on one of my first coordinating jobs when I was working with Kirk Douglas. This is a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, on a film called Holocaust 2000, which was dreadful and probably went straight to video. <laughs> right, and I had a double for Kirk Douglas, who looked more like Kirk Douglas than he did, right down to the dimple in his chin, this guy, <laughs> Dave Brandon. It was quite extraordinary. Anyway, we were doing a fight sequence, and I'd been down there, and I'd looked at all the furniture, and I had breakaway furniture made, and I'd worked out this whole fight routine, and it was just extraordinary how I thought I'd got the fight laid out, and I'd actually got notes on my arm so that I could right. look at it surreptitiously, and the director was very happy with that. And then Kirk Douglas turned up on the day, and he said, okay, what do you got? So I said, okay, um, I can do this, I can do that. And he looked at the double and he said, get him out of here. Mm-hmm. I do my own. Okay. So and that, at that point, he was probably 65. And then he said, no, I don't see it like that. And he changed the whole fight. Now, the thing that I've been sitting and rehearsing in my head for 24 hours plus has gone completely out the window. And I've got to start thinking and shooting from the hip. And it was a great, great lesson. We got through it and we did it with him so that I had to make it so that he could fall over the furniture Mm -hmm. safely. But it was a tremendous lesson in having to actually think and adjust, you know, as you're going. How has CGI changed your work over the years? Because presumably, is there a lot that they're like, oh, we'll just do that in post. (laughs) And you're like, no, it would be great to do this in real life. No, that has altered things hugely, but not as much as I thought it would, because I think that because now... Every kid and his dog has got these programs that make and make cars roll over and things on their own computer. They know that it's all complete nonsense. You know, when you see a car on Fast and Furious turning over 16 times and flying off a rooftop Mm -hmm. and the blokes are doing a fight in the back of the car when they're bailing out of an aeroplane. Now, because there are quite a lot of films about the making of, they're actually going back to realizing that the public do like to see stunt performed properly and that's made a resurgence of doing things for real which i thought was was in danger of disappearing in the world of green screen there's a lot more stunt work out there now than there was simply because of all the platforms the massive amounts of the transmission platforms that's increased the need for stunt performers and stunts on movies but i believe now that the the public are getting slightly jaundiced about cgi mm. and want to see the real thing jim i hope you'll indulge me i'm the nerd in residence on this podcast <laughs> although rihanna does give me a run for my money <laughs> so i hope you don't mind if i go through some of these classic films some of my favorites that you've worked on just to tell us what you did and what any memories you have from the shoot so one of my all-time favorite films is the 1989 batman yeah where can we find Jim Dowdle in that film? <laughs> oh, I'm just one of the guys running around dodging cars and, and everything else. Eddie Stacy, who was the coordinator on that, I was doing another film in the studio and he said, do you want to double up and do some night work? So I was doing days on my film and then coming on to Batman set at night. But I did not do anything spectacular on the original Tim Burton <laughs> Batman. How about Indiana Jones? I did Last Crusade. And the most interesting thing about that was that Spielberg at that time He would storyboard it. He would then get a thing called an animatic, which is like a cartoon made of the whole film, which he'd almost edited before he even came over here. So he knew exactly what he wanted to shoot. And so there was a storyboard up on the big chalkboard in the morning. And they'd say, this is what we're going to shoot. And the cameras are going to be here and everything else. And for instance, we did this boat chase in St. Catherine's Dock, where we are chasing 
Indy. He's on one of the boats, and I'm dressed up as a guy with a fez and a, and a dreadful moustache in a speedboat behind him, chasing him round the place. And eventually, we meet a, a sorry end between two ships which crush us, <laughs> and the whole thing explodes and all that. I mean, it was great fun, but it, we were essentially shooting an animatic. And that was very interesting because he'd edited that thing in LA before he ever came over here. And my last geeky one of note, and this is of note because you have an actual character name in this film, Superman 2, where you play poor Boris, the cosmonaut oh, yes. who makes a sticky end on the moon. Can you tell us about <laughs> <Yes>. that one? <laughs> that was really interesting because myself and Paul, Paul Weston played the American astronaut, I was the Russian astronaut. And of course, the wires that we used to use in those days were really quite crude. Now we use multi-core shark wire if you're going to be hung up in a harness. But in those days, they used piano wire, which is single strand. And that stuff could break when you were up there and it would go ping. And you then suddenly you were hanging on one hip and the likelihood was it would then the other one would ping and you'd drop. And that was quite nerve wracking because there was no CGI in those days. So the way that they used to actually lose the wires on camera he used to stand on a ladder and spray the wires black so that the paint was wet. you think it would be the other way around, but somehow he managed to lose those in the camera. You can't see the wires in the camera. It's fantastic. But wearing the spacesuit, when they put the visor down, the one thing it was missing was a clip to hold it down. So as I went upside down, as Terence Stamp picks me up and throws me off, and I'm sort of going upside down in this thing as I disappear off into space, <laughs> the visor would pop open. So they said, oh, OK, we'll get some silver tape and we'll close the visor once you're ready to go. The problem was then that's all the oxygen I had in there. I had no other supplementary breathing. So this thing was not only huge and incredibly hot, but once they take the visor, it was like take a deep breath and then incrementally just take what oxygen was left. But by the time I'd done my third somersault on the wire, I was out and they would drop me down and then rip the thing open, <sighs> give me some air. I mean, that's how crude it was in wow. some ways. <laughs> that was an interesting experience. Terence Stamp was an extraordinary bloke, very interesting actor, very thought-provoking things he would put into the mix. I always thought he was a very brave actor. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Really fascinating character too. That sounds like such a dangerous situation to be in where you only have a certain amount of oxygen and you'd be passing out before the take's over. Yeah. Is that the most dangerous situation you've been in? I mean, that's quite a crude way of talking about it. <laughs> no, not at all. I think that it's just one of those things that now, with the benefit of my 10,000 hours, that would never happen. You would make allowance for that. And I would have gone and said, you've got to put a catch on this and you've got to put some links in which allow some air to come into mm. it. But nobody had thought of that at the time. <laughs> and it's only those things that happen. You go, oops, next time I know exactly what to do. And the next time I had to go in a spacesuit, the first thing I said to him was, I need some breathing space and you need to have it so that the visor leaves a little bit of air so that I can breathe in there. Mm. Is there another example that comes to mind of how it was done back then that you absolutely wouldn't do now? You know, we've got a great deal better fire protection now for doing fire burns. In the old days, we used to wear Nomex racing suits and then we would put tin foil around the areas where it was going to be hottest, where you were going to put the accelerant. Now we have far better stuff and we have protective gels which you can put on your arm and frankly you can pour petrol on your arm on bare skin and you can have your arm on fire but in those days you did it by cooking foil by trying to bounce the heat away from you and you had to be very careful with the material of what you were wearing i mean you had to have natural fibers you don't want to do a fire burn in anything which is nylon because a it burns anyway and b it drips and you get all sorts of i mean it's just horrible stuff but 
now that sort of thing is very different we've got better breathing devices we've got fabulous devices now for going underwater there's some stuff called spare air which you can buy commercially which you would take in if you were driving a car off into the water into the sea the safety side accelerates but it's still madness to drive a car <laughs> off the end of a jetty yes. into the sea isn't it i mean it's not right it i mean you need your head examined but if there's enough pound notes at the end of the jetty, then you go, all right, well, we'll have a go at it. Won't we? You know, you can always rub the embrication on with a £50 note. <laughs> is there like a day on set that you really look forward to? What is like the one stunt that you always love doing? I like doing car turnovers. You know, I've done a lot of them and there are all sorts of different methods for turning cars over. And when I've got a big car chase or sequence to do and I know that I've got the right guys around with me and then we're going to finish up with a cannon roll or a flip using a pipe ramp or whichever method it is. And the stunt engineers, because who I've been working with for 40 years, there's a real team element of mm. that. Then that's exciting. That's really good. And I used to do a lot of commercials for the Irish government for road safety, where they said, we don't want a stunt. We want an accident. Right. We want people to actually go, oh, I've got to remember to put my seatbelt on, or I must not go and drink, or I must not be using yeah. my phone and picking my nose, or whatever it is. And those were tremendously challenging. And although they were super, super strained because the budgets were very small, they were government funded, you knew that you were going to be hopefully saving lives, but you only had one pop at it. They'd only give you one car. Like on a Bond film, they'd give you five and they go, well, we'll see which is the best car turnover with the five. And you had to do it so that it was violent, so that you got that moment when people sit back in their seat and go, oh my God. Yeah. And we were very, very successful at that. And I look back on those things as being jobs which were tremendously satisfying. And not because you got some kind of glow because you might be saving lives, but it was in a way that's what it was all about. You know, we weren't selling cornflakes. We were actually frightening people. And that's a real challenge. Jim, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. We can go on. Your credits list is just so ex <laughs> so huge and extensive. So many projects we could talk about. Thank you so much for talking with us. I do have one last question that we're asking every guest we have on this show. So, of course, this show has been an opportunity for Rihanna and me to talk with people behind the scenes that we'd love to hear about their jobs. And I wonder, you're invited to our big imaginary rap party. Who would you like to talk to, living or dead, at this party? I would love to have talk to Buster Keaton yes. and I think he would probably be the first choice. Buster Keaton is somebody I have enormous respect for, for what he did and the things that he pioneered in terms of what we now consider the stunt industry. And if you look at early Buster Keaton films, you see what went in and they were doing everything for real. There's no, there's no <laughs> tricks there. He was a master. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jim. You've been an absolute delight to chat to. Thank you so much for joining us at the Rap Party. It's my pleasure. Thanks for your time. Thank you to Jim Dowdell for talking with us today. Such a fascinating history to the stunt profession. He's, he's there for yeah. five, six decades worth of it. <laughs> I loved hearing about Superman too, not just because I think that scene of Zod on the moon is such a beautiful and quite eerie sequence, mm -hmm. but hearing about how actually dangerous that stunt was was quite an eye-opener. And I, I keep thinking it can't really be as, as dangerous and terrifying to go to work every day because otherwise why would you do it? But it really is dangerous <laughs> and terrifying stuff that he's doing. Like when he was talking about setting people on fire and just having to do that incrementally. I mean, how do you incrementally set someone on fire? <laughs> but a highlight for me, Brosnan's beans on toast. Mm -hmm. Little anecdote there. Now we know what James Bond had for breakfast before he was James Bond. That's a pretty big coup. 
<laughs> of course, listeners, you know we always love to give you some homework, and today the reading list doesn't come much bigger. Think of how big Jim's CV is. You can, of course, head over to Prime Video to watch his recent work on the Grand Tour. And there are also recent favourites like The Bourne Supremacy and Rock and Roller, and some of Jim's classics like my favourite, Indiana Jones. Rihanna, I loved talking with Jim this week. As the Grail Keeper in Indiana Jones' Last Crusade would say, when it comes to this week's guest of the Rat Party, we chose wisely. Very good. Very good. Rat Party with Prime Video is a Little Dot Studios production for Prime Video. The show is hosted by Rihanna Dillon and Michael Leader. It's produced by Annie Hughes, Jake Cunningham and Harold McShiel, with additional research from Nicole Davis. Our original music is by Axel Cacoutier. We're edited by Content is Queen. And our artwork is by Sandra Boucher and Sam Mason. If you've enjoyed the show, you can subscribe to us on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you at the party. <laughs>